Hi, this is Dr. Kerry Gill uh, from Open Your Eyes Documentary. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Lisa Renzi, who's a PhD. She's a visual neuroscientist at the University of Georgia. As doctors, when I see patients, I can affect the lives of maybe 20, 25 patients a day. Dr. Renzi does the research that we use to affect the lives of patients. So she actually affects millions of people's lives because she affects the doctors and what they do in their office. And because of what we do, we give recommendations to our patients. So I wanna thank you for your work and how did you become a visual neuroscientist and why? Well, that is a great question. Um, so, you know, I have to say that it was like the series of sort of bizarre, <laughs> bizarre experiences as a student. So um, I remember thinking that I really loved bench science. I, I liked like the solitude of a lab and I could kind of go on my own and, you know, I, I loved bench science. But the, so I, my very first research experience as a college student, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an MD or a PhD. Um, and I shadowed an orthopedic surgeon. And I remember having this experience of being in the office with him and there would be, you know, a patient who would come in who would have a complaint um, and he had so many patients and he was this really renowned orthopedic surgeon, but he had so many patients that he could see like one person for five minutes. And I remember thinking, but wait, if this patient had known a little bit more, she wouldn't be here, right? I mean, like this visit didn't need to happen. It felt like there was just not a whole lot of preventive care happening. So I thought, okay, maybe the medical model isn't for me, let me try research. And so I, I had this research opportunity where I was um, making like all sorts of new, like lots of new things in labs. I was working on parasites and on cancer and these big problems, but I never saw a human. <laughs> so I thought there's gotta be some way to get the person back that I, that I saw in the medical setting and actually still keep my bench. So neuroscience was a really great way to do that because the, you know, the, the sort of issues that people have that um, they need a lot of help with, a lot of them tend to start with the brain. Um, the very decisions that we make, the knowledge that we have, it all starts there. Um, so it's, it's kind of this like mix of Lisa's a geek and wants to, to do geek science, but a geek who likes people. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where I ended up was, you know, in this in this like configuration of, you know, doing bench science with humans. So explain what a visual neuroscientist is. Ah, so a visual neuroscientist. So I, I'm interested in neuroscience. I wanna understand the brain. I wanna know how it works. Um, I really liked Gary Larson Farside comics when I was growing up and I, I, there's a one in particular where they're poking the brain and a foot comes up and I was all about that. Um, so I, I'm really interested in the brain itself, but I also think that one of the best ways to understand the brain is to use, is to, is to find little pieces of brain that are actually accessible to us, right? So if I wanna study brain, you, I need to find people with no metal in their bodies and stick them in a huge magnet um, and hope they don't get claustrophobic. And then I need to spend lots and lots of money and look at that brain tissue. And that's really not efficient. Um, there's no way to, you know, if, if we have a major neurological complaint, we can do that. But if I just want to study your brain, that's, that's a challenge. Um, and a lot of people don't really enjoy doing it. But if you, look in, if you look in the eye, there is a healthcare provider that sees your brain every single day, right? And that's your optometrist. Um, 
if you go for an eye exam and someone's doing a nice, you know, really good examination of your retina, they're looking at your brain. So that, that sensitive tissue in the back of the eye is brain tissue. So visual neuroscience is, is understanding the brain through understanding what comes into it, right? We are visual people. We, we like to see things. We like to, you know, the, the idea of losing our sight scares a lot of us. So um, a lot of the brain is, de is dedicated to processing vision. So a visual neuroscientist looks at the brain by looking at what's coming into it through the eyes. Oh, cool. So yeah, one of the things that frustrates me and probably frustrates you is it takes about 17 years for the research that you do for us to use in clinical practice. Why do you think that is? Yes. So, um, so I am, I'm actually talking to you live from the, from the University of Georgia College of Public Health. Um, and one of the reasons that I'm over here in public health is because in public health, we are committed to closing that gap. So there's what we do in, in science. We do a study and it takes a few years to get it done. We do that study. We then work for a couple of years to get it into a scientific journal. And then we sort of feel like a scientist, great, done, check, work is done. So the problem with that model is that there aren't a lot of healthcare providers, eye care providers included, who after a long day of work say, well, I'm home now. I was at work for 12 hours today. I think it's probably time to cuddle up with my favorite research article. <laughs> like it's, a, it's a broken system, right? So we, we use that method of publishing and we assume that our job is done as though healthcare providers have the time and the bandwidth to go home and keep up to date on the massive amount of science that is actually being produced. So um, one of the great, um, one of the great things to act, one of the great ideas that we sort of have over here in public health is to really start working on closing that gap. Um, not just in the way that we present our findings, we don't just, you know, it, it's not just a matter of, I disseminate in a journal and you all read it and everything's beautiful. Um, but in trying to think about how to change the way people actually practice medicine, right? So we worry a lot about also things like effectiveness. Um, one thing that tends to happen when we do research, I think that most people in the world are sort of familiar with this model of drug trials, um, where, you know, you essentially, we compare a drug that you might be taking versus a placebo, as though you ever walk into your doctor's office and say, well, I understand that I could take a drug for my cholesterol or I could take nothing. I'd like the nothing, please. Right? So we're interested in a type of research that really compares things in the way that people actually use them and consume them in hopes that that will close the gap a little bit. I mean, it really is a huge responsibility because what you do affects thousands and thousands of doctors, which affects right. millions and millions of, of patients. Right. And the research is always changing, which is, I guess, good. I mean, research is yeah. <laughs> it's never closed, really, because you do a lot of nutrition research. Yeah. And, you know, one day eggs are good, one day eggs are bad, one day eggs are good. Yeah. So what do we, how do we know what to believe? That's a good question. And it, the, the real problem of that is that at the end of the day, eggs are good, eggs are bad. I'll just go eat a donut. <laughs> right? I mean, so right. it's, it's... And a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, they do. So it's, it's one of these nutrition sciences is, is sort of ridiculous. I'm not, I just, I don't believe it. Red wine is better than going to the gym one day. Red wine will kill me the next day. I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to eat a donut. Um, and I, I think that 
there's two ways to think about nutrition information. And one of them is a very, very common sense kind of way. And then another one is, okay, I've got the common sense down. Now I want to dig into the particulars. Um, and I think it's the, actually the particulars where people get lost. So from a common sense perspective, eating vegetables is probably pretty good, right? Not eating a ton of food is probably pretty good. Um, if there's a whole bunch of like chemical garbage in your food, eh, you probably don't want that actually. Um, if you think about the sort of natural history of humans, um, we didn't consume things that weren't just real and kind of out of the ground. Um, it didn't exist, right? So I, I, I grew up in the era of better living through chemistry, right? We all even remember the slogans of the companies that were, that were making these things. So I think that um, Americans in particular really bought into that idea and we've exported it everywhere in the world. So when it comes to nutrition, for those who are like, forget it, I'm going to eat the donut, don't. Wait, wait on the donut. Um, and then think about it, you know, from a real common sense perspective, right? Eat things that come out, eat, eat plants. Plants are good for you. Um, you know, if you're considering eating a bunch of meat, even if it's not gonna kill you, there's some environmental cost to that. You know, try to, just try to be a good steward of the planet and your diet will follow suit, really. Um, but then we start, start getting into the weeds of nutrition and I think that's where people get lost. So the way that nutrition studies have to be done is sort of strange, right? So what we do is we take a, a huge cohort of humanity, thousands and thousands of people, and then we kind of look at their diet and we say, this worked out and this didn't work out. So given the fact that there's always different cohorts of people tested, right? What you find in one study may not actually apply to a different group, which is where we sort of get lost and confused along the way. Um, I think that, you know, in many cases, I, I even as a nutrition person, I, I, I kind of read these things and go, wait, what? Um, so sometimes it's useful to sort of do this and actually, you know, really just think about it from a common sense perspective. If it's, you know, there's some really simple tips for eating a good diet. Go for the ring of the grocery store, not the middle. If it comes in boxes and packages, you might want to consider minimizing it. If you look at the ingredients and there's, you know, sugar in the first three, eh, you probably want to think about that a little more carefully. If you can't pronounce the ingredients, you might want to skip it. And then I would also say that if it has ingredients, you might want to skip it altogether, right? So it's, you know, it's a matter of just trying to, trying to think of our bodies in the context of the world in which we acquired these bodies. We've gone through more change in the last hundred years than we have ever, right? So these, the ability to, to build foods out of, you know, out of chemistry um, can be okay, but you might want to just kind of limit some of that. I know some of the people that are watching, uh, you know, are pretty geeky and they'll read something and or they'll see something, right, and they'll see something on television and they'll actually go to the study. How could they tell if the study is really kind of funded from corporations that's kind of trying to sway your opinion and may not be exactly like sugar is good for you done by, done by the soda industry? Right, 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 right. So, so one thing I would say about research in general is that I think we have a tendency to say if it's sponsored by industry, it's bad, right? Like it's, it's tainted. But the truth is that industry funds a lot of research um, in universities. If you, if you think of all the science that needs to be done and all the scientists who are out there, um, the idea that everyone is going to receive their funding from the government or that government funded research doesn't, isn't also kind of agenda based. Um, I think is a mistake. So I think what you have to do if you're, if you're looking at research, absolutely go and look at the funding source 
and think about the conclusions in the context of the funding source. Um, so yeah, if it's, you know, sugar is great funded by the soda industry, okay, that, that feels a little motivated to me. But one thing that industry is good at funding is research on effectiveness, right? So not, you know, is this, is this product good compared to nothing? Is this product good compared to this one? And those sorts of studies I think are really useful actually. So it's, I think becoming a good consumer of nutrition science um, requires a lot of patience and a lot of the ability to step back and say, does that sound right to me? I mean, does that, you know, why, why might that have been found, right? It, it's a, it's, it takes a lot of really, really critical, you know, of, of really critical look. Um, and I think that what we read in, in the news very often is, you know, sort of a, a cool clickbait headline, like, eat this one thing and you'll avoid Alzheimer's disease. And everyone's going, well, sweet. But if that were true, then everybody would just do it and there would be no more Alzheimer's disease, <laughs> right? Oh. So when you see sensationalism, it's probably sensationalism. So what part of the idea study and concentrate on? So um, that, you know, that's a really good question that you've, that you've asked. For me, it's always, I, I look very carefully at the methods of a study. So um, almost the first thing that I read when I'm, when I'm reading science is I go straight to the methods and I say, how did you do that? And is that rational? Did that make sense? Um, and so it's, it's one of those situations where if it's, the methods tell you everything that you need to know. So if, if it's a study on eggs, for example, let's go back to our, let's go back to our old friends, the eggs. So if it's a study on eggs and you're, you're opening it up and looking at it, you know, how did they, how did they actually measure egg consumption? There's a really big difference between eating, you know, an, an egg that's fried in like lard and an egg that is, you know, scrambled with spinach. So if you're just looking at the number of eggs that people eat, you're not taking into account how they eat them. So I think the most important thing when you're consuming science like that is to say, what did you test? So at the end of the day, if it looks like, you know, eggs are bad for you, but you're testing in an area where people tend to fry their eggs in like bacon grease, yeah, <laughs> eggs might turn out to be bad for you, right? There's, there's more to it than just, did you eat the food? So to me, it's the method section. If I'm, if I'm looking at science, I go straight to the methods and I say, who did you test this on and how did you do it? Um, and then I try to think about what they found in the context of how they did it. So that's always to me, the, that's the kind of magic thing of, of deciding whether or not I want, to, I want to use those findings in some way that are meaningful. And in fact, in a very recent study of eggs, right, speak of the devil, um, it, there was a big study where they, they started to conclude that eggs weren't great anymore, but there was no differentiation in, in how they were eaten. Um, so an egg in a, you know, like on your, in, with like a spinach scramble, yes, do that. <laughs> but, you know, frying bacon and then adding your egg to the bacon grease, probably less of that. No, no. So when you look at the eye, what part of the eye are you studying and what, what are you trying to accomplish in your studies? Okay. Yeah, so, so I look at the whole eye, actually. Um, I, some, so if, if I were to describe my work um, in the world of vision, some of it is trying to understand the things that we put into our eyes, right? So I do an entire set of work on things like contact lenses and intraocular lens implants, um, which for anyone who's had a cataract, that phrase is ringing a bell for you. Um, because there's a, if you think about the brain and cognition, the first thing to think about is, is sort of like, what are we putting into our bodies? What are we putting into our brains? 
So if, you, if your brain is working very hard already to do all of the things that it has to do, but you've got a really bad signal coming in, right? You're looking through degraded cloudy vision, you're not able to see the world clearly, um, then that's gonna affect how you think. So there's research that's come out recently, for example, that suggests that if you take people who have some cognitive difficulties, um, they, maybe they have Alzheimer's disease, the very starts of it, they're having some problem really figuring things out, you just improve their sight or improve their hearing, their ability to think and process improves too, right? So, you know, just by, just by improving people's sight, um, you can make a huge difference in terms of how they think, right? Because a brain that's having to process so much of the world is going to have a really hard time trying to sift through all the sort of gunk in someone's visual field. So I look at things like contact lenses that can improve visual function, or I look at things like, um, you know, lens implants for people who have had a cataract, just to see how can we make them better? Um, how can we build something that's really gonna improve sight? So to do that, I study the cornea and the lens. Um, a lot of my work has also focused on the retina because retina really is brain, right? So if I wanna understand someone's risk for having cognitive difficulties, if I look in their retina and I see that their retina has really had to, is really degraded over time, it's really, um, you know, it's really not looking so good, then I, then I know there's a problem, right? I know that I can sort of keep looking up and um, I'll probably find the same problem upstairs. What are some early signs that the optometrist could see in the eye that would show that they may be at risk for Alzheimer's? That's a great question. Um, so one, one thing that people can look for is just on a routine eye exam, take a look at that retina, right? So if you're noticing the early signs of age-related macular degeneration, for example, and for those who are listening who have never heard of, of AMD, age-related macular degeneration, that is the leading cause of blindness in the United States, in Europe, and a lot of other places. And it's one of the leading causes of blindness all over the world. So AMD is, um, it's a, when, when we look in retinas and we're looking for AMD, we are looking for, you know, essentially for these little spots um, called drusen. And these little spots called, called drusen, they're these like little pockets um, of, of sort of gunk in the eye. And if, if you're asking like, you know, what's, what's causing the gunks? What's, you know, what's actually doing that? Generally speaking, um, all the cells in our body will break down over time, right? It's just a sort of normal, normal fact of living, unfortunately. Um, we can do things to slow down how that degeneration happens, or of course, we can do things to speed it up. Um, so our behavior very much um, helps us sort of, you know, can really help sort of shape how we go. Um, but over time, as, as our cells start to degenerate, as they break down, um, it is absolutely the case that um, all these little bits of gunk that really, you know, kind of like, that, that are part of our cells can absolutely, um, unfortunately, they can, you know, build up and build up and build up in the eye. And when they do that, and we see them back there, um, we know that there's a sign that the retina is starting to break down a little bit. The very same things that break down a retina also break down every other cell in the body. There's only so many ways that cells die. 
Um, and so when what we're looking for in retinas are signs that, that the retina is starting to break down and all those little gunked up parts of cells will actually cluster into these visible, um, these little visible pieces in the back of the eye called drusen. So we look for those. Um, we look for signs that the blood vessels that are supplying the retina with blood um, are having to work a little harder <laughs> to get that blood supply in. There's lots of things like that that we're looking for and a really good eye exam will show us that actually. So you're looking at a little piece of brain and you can actually track how fast it's breaking down whenever you look in retina. And if you see the drusen or the eye doctor sees the drusen in the peripheral part of the retina. So the retina is the lining of the back of the eye that your eye doctor is going to either take a picture of or look at. I always recommend that they take a picture because a lot of times the photograph of the retina could see more than the doctor can, but then the doctor could analyze the photograph. And yes. Good information. But if you see those little spots in the periphery, is that indication that the person may be at risk for Alzheimer's? Yeah, so it certainly can be, actually. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that we have to track really very carefully. So what, what Drusen are certainly a sign that, um, that an individual is experiencing lots of stress to the eye. So if, if you think about how, you know, how cells break down, um, those of you listening have certainly heard of inflammation, that that's a big problem. And you've probably heard of, of the term oxidative stress. You've probably heard of antioxidants and free radicals and things like that. So generally speaking, if you want to understand kind of what, a, what oxidative stress is, think about it this way. We're humans. <laughs> we exist on the earth. We have a sun that gives us light. We breathe oxygen. These are just factors of being human. Take away the light, we're in trouble. Take away the oxygen, we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> Too much light or oxygen can also be a really bad thing. Um, oxygen is relatively stable. I'm breathing it. I'm okay. Um, oxygen is really not just a single atom of oxygen. It's two oxygens kind of stuck together. So think about it this way. The way that oxygen bonds to other oxygen is like us shaking hands. So Carrie, if I could like reach across my computer and shake your hand, you'd grasp mine, I'd grasp yours, and we're sort of connected during that time period. That's how oxygen exists mostly um, in, our, in our atmosphere and on our bodies. Now imagine, imagine that that something really huge happened. Um, imagine that you and I are shaking hands and like there's a lightning bolt that strikes and cuts off my arm. Now you have an extra arm. <laughs> you are holding on to my arm and you wanna get rid of it. I'm freaking out because I have no arm and I need one. <laughs> so this is what free radicals are basically. It's, it's an oxygen that enough energy has come in and ripped these two molecules apart and one takes a little piece of the other with it. So both of, both of those oxygens are freaking out and they want to do something. They wanna to bond to something else and be like, oh, that's better. If I have the arm, I wanna get rid of it. I'm, this is an arm I don't need. Um, if, if I don't have an arm, I'm gonna to try to steal yours. So that's how things are in the body. Um, and when you think about cells, all cells are covered in fat and these big proteins that are really easy to sort of get into and kind of disrupt if you're in that circumstance. So um, the way that, you know, that cells in the retina or the brain or anywhere else get into trouble is um, when you're experiencing lots and lots of light, which can be energetic enough to yank off that arm, or if it's the case that you're smoking, you know, you're, you're not eating lots of foods that have antioxidants, Antioxidants are big molecules that say, hey, I've got lots of arms. Here, take an arm. Oh, you've got an arm? I'll take your arm, right? So they're, they're, these, they're these molecules that can really account for all of this damage to oxygen. So the more antioxidants in your diet, 
the less chance you have of having this, this sort of disrupted situation. Um, whenever, whenever you've got these oxygen-free radicals that are messing up the parts of your cell, um, all of those pieces have to be repaired and sort of pulled out and replaced with new fat and new protein from your diet. So, you know, the, the more antioxidants you consume, the better. The more you change your behavior, the less you have the free radical problem at all. So, so whenever you have cells that are damaged, it causes inflammation. So when we look in the back of the eye and we see drusen and we're, you know, we're seeing all of these problems, what it tells us is that the person who, whose eye we're looking at has lots of oxidative stress and lots of, lots of inflammation. So we need to do something to try to calm that situation down a little bit. And you can do a lot of it just by changing lifestyle. And what are some of the lifestyle recommendations that you have to help improve that? Great question. So um, the first one, if we're talking about risk for things like Alzheimer's disease and macular degeneration has to be stop smoking. Smoking cessation is still, um, it's funny to be to be here in you know 2020 talking about smoking cessation still. It, it feels like one of those things that no one deals with their studies anymore because we all know it's bad and people just shouldn't do it. But, you know, yeah, it's still a problem. So, you know, when you smoke a cigarette, it's a big stick of, of free radicals, basically. So helping people quit in a way that works with their lives is a, still a really, really important thing for us to do. Um, definitely eating a diet that's rich in antioxidants. So if we go back to our grocery store discussion, right, antioxidants are going to be on the ring of the grocery store. They're in your produce aisle. Um, so generally speaking, it's eating things like green leafy vegetables, brightly colored fruits, um, and remembering that if you don't like those things, it's okay. And the reason I say that it's okay is that it's very easy to start to like a food. So if you think about the way that we eat food, let's say that I hate the taste of spinach and I think it's gross. Um, if I hate the taste of spinach and I think it's gross, I can do a couple of things. I can stash it in places that I wouldn't taste it, like say a really nice smoothie. Um, you can hide a lot of green vegetables in a smoothie. And, and if I didn't hide them in smoothies, my daughter would probably not be okay. <laughs> That's sort of how we sort of manage it in my house. Um, so you can stash them away in, in places that you won't taste them. Of course, the other way to go about liking a food is remembering something very particular. And that is that brains can change forever. The, what we taste, what we enjoy, what we, what we like to eat is entirely a trained thing, right? So if I decide that I hate spinach, but I'm determined to like it, I have to just remember that I have to try it like 15, 16 times before I have any chance of liking it. So if people can get up the discipline to say, I don't like spinach now, but I will like it because I'm going to eat one little bite of it a day. Um, Within a couple of weeks, they'll actually start to like it. So it's, it's one of those situations too with sugar. Like, you know, I can tell you, listeners, that um, here I am talking to you about diet, but research is me-search. Um, I remember being in graduate school and eating some sort of sugar-sweetened cereal that was, that was really bad <laughs> that I won't name out loud. So eating this really, you know, sort of gross sugar-sweetened cereal. And walking into the nutrition department and having my nutrition professors going, you can't eat that in here. I just, I cannot let you in the building with that garbage. And I was like, you guys told me to pick foods based on color and there's neon blue in that. You know, I'm pretty sure I'm good. Um, 
those were dark days. <laughs> I, I would get, I would make myself a cup of hot tea and I would dump like six sugar packets in it. I mean, I'm, I'm like confessing my sugar junkie status. Um, so to get over it, if I put six sugars in a hot tea, I started putting five and I didn't like my hot tea for a little while. It was gross. And half of the listeners right now are like, I can't even listen to you because you did that. Um, so then I started with five. And then over the course of a couple of weeks, five sugars started to taste really sweet to me. So then I dropped to four. And then I gave it another week. And four sugars finally started to taste okay. And then three, and then two. And it, it sort of cascades down. Dietary habits are trained. It takes a long time to, you know, to really like um, foods that are different from what we always eat and what we're so used to eating. So all it takes is just time. And that's, this is a really positive message. It means that even if there's something that you really wanted to eat but don't like it, little tiny bites, take one bite a day or a few bites a week. And pretty soon you will actually like that food because your brain is flexible and plastic and it can change. So you know, really thinking about diet in tiny increments. Um, people get stymied when they try to change their diets because they're like, I, I can't do this, it's too much. Um, Food all tastes awful to me now. And if that's how it feels for you, you're just going too fast. Slow it down. Um, change one thing in little tiny steps until it makes sense to you. And then I would say, obviously, um, another great strategy is really exercise, cardiovascular exercise. Um, so when we, you know, when we are cardiovascularly fit, our blood vessels everywhere in the body benefit. We, we always talk about heart disease and we think like, oh, it's my coronary artery. If you can just fix that, I'm, I'm good. As though the problem isn't in every artery of the body. So when people are in cardiovascular shape, you can actually see it in the back of their eyes. Um, so I would regard, I would say to, to all of you listening, you know, if you're going to work on your diet and your exercise, your eye exams are your perfect challenge, right? Listen to your eye doctor tell you how your eyes are changing from visit to visit and you will have all of the confirmation that you need that you're doing it right because you can really tell just by looking at the back of your eye what will the eye doctor see in the back of the eye that could be that could indicate possible cardiovascular disease or high blood pressure great great questions so all right here's a way to think of retina we always think of your brain as being like you know, the thing that has, that draws up most of your blood. In fact, at any given moment, those of you who are listening to me right at the second, um, as you're hearing my voice, as you're hearing Carrie's, 25-ish percent of all of the blood circulating your entire body is stuck in your brain, right? Brains are expensive. They require lots of blood, lots of oxygen, and lots of resources. Brains are also kind of big. I mean, that organ weighs, you know, there's, there's some poundage up there. We disregard retinas because they're little. So in this few millimeters of space back here is actually, per its size, a lot more blood flow than is going anywhere else. So that little few millimeters of space that's lining the back of your eye actually has two blood supplies, one behind and one coming in from the front. And because retinas need so much blood um, and, and take so much energy, think, think about your day. If you were to strap a camera to your head, put a GoPro on your head and wander around the world um, and then watch the video, first of all, you'd get seasick <laughs> because there'd be so much shaking and vibrating that you're automatically sort of controlling for. Um, if you Google goat with a GoPro, it'll, it'll change your life in the way that you think about your vision system. Plus it's goat with a GoPro. How can you go wrong with that? Um, 
but if you if you were to stick a camera on your head and, and sort of film everything that you do, now think of how much space that would take up, right? That recording would take up an immense amount of space. It would be hard to watch, and there would be so much information that was captured. But your eyes are doing that all the time. They require incredible amounts of energy, which means lots and lots of blood. So if we look into your eyes and we really do a good um, analysis of the blood flow of your retina, we'll see all these little changes um, back there. If you're in trouble and we're worrying about you having hypertension or high blood pressure, if we're worried about the state of your heart, um, we'll see all these little blood vessels kind of sprouting in your eye, um, just trying to keep enough blood flow through those clogged blood vessels um, up to your eye. So there's, there's little tiny changes in the blood vessels of your eye can tell us whether or not you are, you may be at risk for diabetes, whether or not your heart is in shape. Um, all of those things are visible to us just by taking a look back there. So you've done a lot of research on using the eye for Alzheimer's, for macular degeneration. When we find that somebody is at risk, what do you recommend that we do? Great question. Um, and that's always the crux of it, right? Is that you go in one day and you, you go in for your eye exam and your optometrist says, okay, we got to talk. Um, we got to talk. I'm seeing Drusen back there. I'm seeing um, that, you know, that your retina is kind of, the tissue of your retina is kind of pulling away from the back. Like this is, this is all kinds of no good. Um, so then what do you do? So I think the very first thing that you do um, is that you really, really think about your exposures to oxidative stress. So again, smoking cessation is really key, but not only that, what are you eating? Can we get more antioxidants in your diet? And people always think, doesn't that mean I need surgeries or I need like shots? It may come to that, but for the most part, people can do wonders just by changing their diet. So if you're, if you're thinking about what sorts of things in your diet to, to do, dark green leafy vegetables, um, like spinach or kale, anything that's green and leafy, um, have in them a little molecule called lutein. So lutein, um, L-U-T-E-I-N, lutein, is um, it's an antioxidant that is found in those green leafies. We often find it with a molecule called zeaxanthin. Um, zeaxanthin um, and lutein go hand in hand where you find one, you usually find the other. And what lutein and zeaxanthin do if you think about um, if you think about a plant, right? So so imagine that it's fall right now. Um, if it's fall right now, um, you'll see reds and yellows and oranges and sort of beautiful, beautiful colors. Um, the molecules that are giving plants their color, those plant pigments, are called carotenoids. There's 700 or so different carotenoids out there in nature. Uh, we only eat about 50 or 60 of those carotenoids because we don't go scavenging for our diets in nature so much, we go scavenging at the grocery store. So we eat about 50 or 60 of those. And then there's, if I were to draw your blood and take a look at what's in there, I'd see about 20 or so of those carotenoids. Um, so, you know, those 20 are the ones that we most commonly eat and they go all over our body through our blood where they do for us just what they do for plants. They're antioxidants. Plants are in sun all day long. Um, and you know, you have to really do something pretty significant to burn them, right? Carotenoids do that for us. They're, they serve the same function. So out of all of the carotenoids in your whole body, um, your eye likes lutein. Lutein and zeaxanthin. 
you've heard of other carotenoids. You probably, those of you listening have probably heard of things like beta carotene or lycopene. Um, those are really good for you. They're good for you in a number of ways, but for your eyes, it's actually not carrots for your eyes, it's spinach for your eyes, right? It's lutein. So what that lutein does, um, along with zeaxanthin, is it forms this little clump in the back of your eyes um, that is called macular pigment. Now, if I were to look in your eye and actually measure the amount of macular pigment that's in there, it would tell me exactly how much lutein you're getting from your food. If you change your diet or you start supplementing lutein, I can measure that lutein going up and up and up. And it's this little patch in the back of your eye that prevents the most vulnerable area of your retina from actually experiencing as much of that oxidative stress and inflammation. So step one, stop smoking. Step two, eat your greens, right? And then we can work on other things from there. But if, you can, if, if people can do those two things and then start increasing the amount of time they're spending doing cardiovascular exercise, you can dramatically reduce your risk for macular degeneration. You, because this is brain, same thing applies. Now you've done studies where you correlated the lutein in the back of the eye with the lutein in the brain and cognitive function. Can you talk about that? I can. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great set of, of studies actually. Um, it, was, it was one of the most fun sets of studies we've ever done because we baffled optometrists all over the place. <laughs> um, this was in the early days when, when lutein supplements weren't as common as they are now. Um, what we did in this set of studies was we basically gave people either a lutein supplement, it was lutein and zeaxanthin, or we gave them a placebo, right? That looked exactly alike, so people had no idea what they got. How many milligrams? Then, yeah, so it was 12 milligrams of lutein and two milligrams of zeaxanthin. And that's about like three quarters of a cup of spinach worth, but increase the dose, you'll probably get bigger results. You know, I mean, just whatever, you know, think about your own diet and what would fit in there for you. But we, um, we gave people the lutein supplement for a year. And so we did this for people who were 65 and older and for college students at the University of Georgia. So the reason that that was astounding is that for those of you who are listening and you're, who are not familiar with University of Georgia outside of like SEC football and, you know, and uh, having a good football team, um, here at the University of Georgia, we are part of the state's university system, which means that we are privy to something really special. So in the state of Georgia, if you are an undergraduate and you have a B average or higher, college within the state is free for you. And that includes University of Georgia and Georgia Tech. If it's a public university, you get to go free. Um, so the students at the University of Georgia, who, who the students in, in Georgia who used to go to Harvard or Stanford, they leave the state um, and go somewhere else, are staying here. So our students on average have a 4.0 when they start, um, at least a 4.0, some of them over actually, that's our average GPA. Our SATs are as high as you could get them. Um, we have really, really great students here from a testing perspective. So these are students who we didn't actually expect to change. They were almost like a control group for us. So we had older adults and we thought that we would intervene with lutein with them and they'd do better. And our younger people were going to be sort of a cognitive control. So that's not actually how it happened at all. Um, so when we supplemented for a year, the people who took the lutein versus the placebo just did better. Um, we did a number of different studies with them. So over the course of the year, we tested their cognitive function. 
um, we did functional magnetic resonance imaging. So we, we actually did get in there and, and look at the brain with our magnet and have people think and do tasks while we were measuring their brain. We stuck electrodes all over their heads and did electroencephalography so that we could tell um, you know, what power, what processing power was like. And across the board, the people with the higher lutein levels just did better. Um, and the ones who took the supplement obviously did better than the ones who took the placebo. And that was not only true of, our, of the older people who were in our study, it was true of the college students too, which is why never since that date have I ever said, you know, young, healthy participants ever again, <laughs> because youth is not a guarantee of health, right? We did things and we improved their cognition too. So, um, and how did, you know, we, we measured brain outcomes, but we also just looked in the eyes and said, what's going on with that pigment? And so as they took their lutein, their, that macular pigment in their retinas went up and up and up. And we know that the relation between what's here in your eye and what's here in your brain is almost perfect. We can really tell what's changing in brain as a result of just measuring your eyes. So go to your eye exams. <laughs> Regular eye exams are a really, really good idea because your optometrist is gonna be able to tell you a little bit more than just your eyes look good. Um, if your eyes look good, your brain's probably looking pretty good too. For people that are starting to get macular degeneration, tell us about carotenoids and how that could slow down the progression. Yes, so if you're, if you're starting to get macular degeneration, then your optometrist has said, okay, things are vulnerable in there. I'm seeing those drusen in there. It looks like your retina's starting to thin out a little bit. Um, we need to intervene. So what adding lutein into the retina will do, if you start you know, really improving your diet or taking lutein supplements and really beefing up the amount of macular pigment back there, um, if you can pull that off, those cells in your retina are vulnerable. They've already sustained some damage, right? Think about like breaking a bone. What do you do if you've got a broken bone? You put a cast on so that you can't keep damaging the area while it heals. So one, it's sort of like that in the eye. You've got tissue that's inflamed. It's suffered from that oxidative stress. Um, it's vulnerable. So when you add lutein into the retina, um, it's an antioxidant. So all that oxidative cascade that's happening there that's so bad, it, it cuts that. Um, and it, it stops all of that progression of oxidative stress. But the other thing that it does is it's anti-inflammatory. Right? It takes an area that is damaged and inflamed because it's damaged and calms some of that down. So um, it's, a, it's a great thing to put in, in the eye. Um, and it's, you know, it's really only lutein and zeaxanthin that are getting in there and doing that. Um, it's a good thing to add in there because these are eyes that are, think of it like a broken bone. Right? It's already got a break. Now we need extra protection while, while we you know, do what we can to recover from it. Eyes are a little harder to recover. Um, once you've got degeneration, it's really hard to, to recover from that. But if you can stop more degeneration from happening, you can save your sight. It's worth doing. Now, if somebody wanted to take a lutein or a zeaxanthin supplement, how do they know they're getting something that says what it says on the bottle? Because so, it's so unregulated. <laughs> yes, and the truth is, um, this is why we say that supplements can't really replace foods. Um, it is so unregulated. It's like the Wild West out there. So generally speaking, um, you know, there are bigger companies on the market who have existed for a lot of years um, who tend to put their dietary products through the same quality control standards as they do, you know, a drug. 
so that's useful. Um, knowing, you know, knowing the history of a company and, you know, kind of looking on the website and seeing how they, how they verify those things is really good. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're at the health food store and you're seeing just a, you know, a company that just sells lutein, can you trust that there's lutein in there? That's it, a good question. Um, and the answer is it, it is pretty unregulated. So I usually look for folks who have a, you know, who are bigger companies who have a robust quality control procedure, just so that I know I'm, I'm getting what I think I'm getting. But mostly I would look at lutein supplements as something to do above and beyond healthy food, right? Like if I look at a piece of spinach, I'm pretty sure that it's spinach. You know, I, I, I know what it is. There's no ingredient list. You don't, you know, I, I don't pull spinach out of the ground and say, oh, I wonder how much of this is artificial spinach product right? I mean, I, I know what I'm getting. So, um, so generally speaking, making those little dietary changes and moving toward a more plant-based diet will really get you to the outcomes that you want in your eye because those things that you're looking for, they're coming from plants. If you can, if you can con your brain into liking plants, you're in really, really good shape. Um, and then you might want to add a supplement on top of, you know, that heavy plant-based diet just to, if you're, especially if you're at risk for the disease and, you know, maybe you have light blue eyes or you're, you know, you're, you're suffering for a little bit more sun damage, you're outside a lot, um, then you might want to add that supplement above and beyond that healthy food. There was an amazing study that came out yesterday on omega-3s that I read. It was, just, it showed that how it really protects the heart with people with high calcium in their blood vessels yeah. and, and how it really slows down heart disease. Yes. Can you talk about omega-3s, how they work, and how it could protect the eye? Sure. Um, so, okay, so think of it this way. In biology, don't tune out yet, because I promise this is accessible. <laughs> In biology, we have a saying, and that is structure dictates function. If you know how it's built, then you know what it does, right? So now think about fat. You're holding an avocado in your hand. You can kind of squish it. Um, you know, you touch it and it's kind of oily, like you, you, you know, it's kind of a liquidy fat in there. Um, now imagine you've got a piece of salmon. You can literally see the oil coming out of the salmon and it's, it's oily. Now imagine that you're holding a French fry. Okay. Yeah. There's some oil in that, but is that, is that kind of what you're after? So, so think of cells now. Every little piece of you is made of fat right? So, so lining the surface of every one of those cells in your body is fat, right? So what kind of fat? What fat is, is making up the structure of your cells? And the answer is, I don't know, what'd you eat, <laughs> right? So the, the fat layer on our cells is constantly being bombarded, broken down, and needs to be repaired. So let's say that I have a, you know, a, a part of my retina or a neuron in my brain, that has just, it's taken a little too many hits from oxidative stress. It's breaking down and it needs to be, it needs to be repaired. So my body will pull out the damaged piece, try to dissolve it or get rid of it. And then it needs some brand new fat to come in and help and help do that job. So I guess the answer is what's in your blood? What did you just eat? Whatever you're eating is what's loaded into your blood supply. And that's what your cells are pulling from as they're making repairs. So what your cells are made of is determined by your diet. We say that you are what you eat, and we mean it in trite ways, but it's absolutely true. The raw material of my body isn't coming from space. It's coming from my blood, whatever, I, whatever I'm eating. So if I'm eating a lot of French fry, that's what I get. 
if I'm eating a lot of really healthy foods, you know, sort of lean fatty fish and, um, and, you know, good, good sources of fats from nuts and healthy oils and, you know, those sorts of sources, then that's what my body must be built of because it's constantly renewing. Very little of the body that I have now was with me when I was an infant, right? All of those cells are constantly rebuilding, repairing, turning over and being replaced. So what I'm eating builds it up. So why do we want omega fats? Why, why are those omega-3 such a good idea? And the answer is they're very fluid, right? A French fry is a very rigid thing, um, but these are very, very fluid fats. So now think about cells in the body and what their jobs are. If I'm a neuron in the brain, my job is to talk to other cells, right? I have to physically connect to other cells in my brain and send messages. The more flexible and bendy I am, the better I can do that job. The more omega-3s I have building my outer shell, the easier it is to change my shape. Structure dictates function. Those good fluid fats make for cells that are really malleable and able to, you know, to, to change and adapt and do their jobs. So in retinas and brains, the job is to communicate. So I definitely want those there. That's one of the reasons they're so good for those tissues. Do you recommend a supplement or how much to take it a day or it, should you just get it in food or should you get it from both? Great question. And I have to say that my own behavior, um, you know, best professional advice here because we don't have, um, we're working on dietary reference intake. So for those of you listening, what we really want to be able to tell you is you should eat about this much of this kind of thing. Um, and for all of the essential stuff, your vitamin C, your, you know, your vitamin D, your, those things, we've got those down. But there's still some disagreement about how much of these things you should be getting um, in your diet for, you know, depending on where you are in life, whether you're a, a kid who's growing lots of things from scratch or whether, you know, you're my age and you're <laughs> doing lots of repair work. So, um, so we're working as a group on dietary reference intakes for things like lutein and, you know, these other foods. Um, but generally speaking, when it comes to omegas, there has been some real benefit from supplementing. So in your diet, your goal is to eat nice, you know, varied sources of fat. Plants have fats too, right? So, you know, you, you want to really diversify where your fats are coming from and get lots of different kinds of them. Um, when it comes to omega-3s, I actually do find that supplementation, depending on what's going on with you, may be really effective. If I had a really high, you know, calcium score, for example, cardiovascular calcium score, I think I'd probably be supplementing those and not just, not just eating them. If I had dry eye, I'd probably be supplementing those and not just eating them. Um, if I were at risk for Alzheimer's disease or macular degeneration, I'd probably step it up. So, you know, it, it really depends a little bit upon, you know, what your diet is usually like and where you are in life as to whether or not you might choose to add a little into the mix. How about for cataracts? Have you done any research to show we could slow cataracts with those carotenoids? Yeah, great question. So we do find um, some lutein and zeaxanthin in the lens. They're actually located there. Generally speaking, when it comes to cataracts, you can um, do a bit of prevention, certainly. So to slow down the progression of cataract, um, and for those of you listening who are like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not too cataracts yet. That's not my fear yet. So what is that? Um, the lens, in your eye is really unique in your body. So it's, it's winter time at the time of this recording in Georgia, which for those of you listening, 
no probably doesn't mean very much. <laughs> um, we've got big thunderstorms right now and, and lots of, um, you know, but it's, it's warm actually outside. So I, I use winter time as a time to do all sorts of repair work on my skin, for example, since I know I'm not gonna be out in the sun as much. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm doing all sorts of things to my skin to try to slough off some of that dead skin and get, you know, fresh new skin underneath. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sloughing off the dead stuff because I'm highly vain and worried about wrinkles. So I'm sloughing off the dead stuff and trying to, trying to you know, regenerate what's underneath. We, we can do that with our skin because we're constantly renewing it. Cells turn over, right? The, the dead layer dies and brand new cells come up underneath. The lens of your eye is one of the only, only bits of tissue in your whole body that doesn't do that. The cells that are, that are sort of old, you know, kind of stay in the middle and a little hard knot, and then you just keep growing new layers of cells over top. So what that inevitably means is that um, when you take those cells and you expose them to light and oxygen and all the things that we're exposed to in the acts of daily living, um, you, you degenerate some of that, but it doesn't go anywhere. It just stays put. And over time, you end up developing cataracts. So if you live long enough, if you, if you have a cataract, congratulations. <laughs> Good job on, you know, on living a nice long life to get to that point of, you know, of needing the surgery. But cataract is unpleasant. It degrades your vision. Um, it does require a surgery to fix it. So delaying the onset of cataract is a really great thing if we can do it. So we do know that lots of antioxidants, you know, limiting that UV exposure, doing the, you know, not smoking, um, can go a long way actually toward preventing cataracts. So it's, you know, if you live long enough, we'll probably be seeing you in the chair for a cataract surgery, but you know, it's, it's one of those things that you actually can push out a little bit through healthy diet, um, not smoking, you know, all, all the same things that, I've, that I just mentioned for retinas are good for lenses too. My last question, I have to ask you this question. I've been wanting to ask you this question for a very long time. <laughs> when I read your studies and some of the studies, and we go to the carotenoid conference, I was fortunate to go to one in Cambridge, which was really <laughs> a fantastic experience. The studies show that when there's more lutein or zeaxanthin in the serum, mm -hmm. there's a less risk of progression of cataracts and macular degeneration. So that makes me assume that if you're absorbing things better, it's getting into the serum, so there's a, a, a greater decrease of these diseases. How do we absorb these nutrients better? That's the ultimate question, right? So, so there's, there's, two, there's two issues, actually, in what you just said. Issue one is, how do you tell if someone's actually benefiting from the, the things that they're consuming? And issue two is, how do you change what you're consuming to get the most benefit, right? So issue one is this sort of weird phenomenon. So I could ask you, I could say, all right, Carrie, what'd you eat? Tell me what you ate yesterday. And you could go through for me and tell me every single thing that you ate yesterday. And then I can take that and say, all right, I'm gonna, by, by what you just told me, I'm gonna make these recommendations for you for your diet. But the truth is, right, that our diets are seasonal. They change a lot. Um, when we do food frequency questionnaires and we give lists of foods and we say, how often do you eat these things? They're also prone to memory issues. Um, if you had asked me what my diet was like when I was pregnant, for example, I would have been like, oh man, I nailed it. I worked really hard <laughs> to, to be like diet wonder woman while I was pregnant. 
If you asked me what my diet was like right after my infant was born, I'd be like, well, I didn't sleep for a long time, so I also didn't encode any memory, and I have no idea. The fact that I didn't encode any memory is why humans have siblings, right? If you remembered every detail of that process, you'd be like, oh, oh no, thank you. But because we don't remember everything that we do, right, it's, it, we're sort of able to, to do it again. So if you ask people what they eat, they don't often actually have a great memory for that. So asking people about their diet is a good step in understanding what's actually getting into their eyes, but it's not the end all be all. So your next, your next trick would then be to say, okay, what's in your body then? Can I actually measure your blood and figure out what you're eating? And the answer is, yeah, you can. You can measure blood and you can figure out what people have had to eat in like the last seven to 10 days um, at max. Usually things don't stick around in blood for that, that long. Um, so if somebody is changing their diet, you can get little incremental, you know, bits of information on how they're doing. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, just because it's in blood doesn't mean it actually makes its way into the retina, for example. There's a process. Um, lots of cells in your body use lutein. So the idea that all the lutein we have that we can measure in your blood is just going to stick itself right in your retina, that doesn't necessarily hold up. So measuring the tissue that we care about, like actually measuring how much lutein's in retina would be the best way to solve that problem because there's a little bit of lost information at every step. But that doesn't mean you can't still maximize your chances of getting that lutein into your retina. So if I eat a big bowl of spinach, how much of it is gonna get into my blood? Good question. If it's in my blood, how much of it's gonna get into my eye? Better question. So if I really want to maximize my chance of getting lutein into my blood and therefore into my eye, step one is add a little fat. So things like lutein are, are fat soluble, which means that we, if we can consume a little bit of fat with our lutein, we can really up our chances of getting it into our bloodstream. So step one is, is to think about how you're preparing the food. Sauteing your lutein with a little bit of a really good quality oil that's a good way to get it in there. Because when you heat it up, you break down that tough matrix. Like take a big piece of kale and gnaw on it and see how much of that you're gonna digest, right? <laughs> not, so, not so much. But if you, you know, if you take that kale and you heat it up and you weaken it a little bit and you add some fat, then the lutein that's coming out of that kale will stick to the fat and when you eat it, it's, it's there, it's easy to get. So it's all, it's, it's partly about what you eat and partly about how you eat it. So. If you like raw kale, go for it, eat it. Just get it into your body somehow. But if you add a little bit of fat, that's a really great way to do it. Um, so heat it up, add some fat, you're gold. Do you recommend digestive enzymes before people eat to try to break down the food? You know, I have to say that I, I think that the, that's a really interesting option. And, and for people who are in a position, um, for example, like if you think about just the process of aging, we do get a little bit less efficient with digestion. So it's, it's one of those things that if you suspect that you're, you know, say that say you, you know, you have these things measured in blood or you have them measured in your eye, you really make a dietary change and they're not changing. Um, looking into digestion and figuring out if you're actually able to effectively break that food down is a good, is a good question. Um, there's a lot of interest right now in the gut microflora and to say like, what's living in us? Because Let's be honest, it's the bacteria in our gut that are really doing the heavy lifting and breaking down those complex foods. So even considering, you know, what is people who, for example, may have celiac disease or, you know, have some issues with actually digesting um, different components of food, 
may want to really consider what the enzymatic makeup is of their, you know, of their gut and, and take a look also at their gut microflora and say, you know, all right, I'm going to do this with some pre and probiotic too. You know, it's, it's, it's a matter, this is where we start getting into the, the sort of future that we all hope for. And that is personalized medicine. It's not enough to say, you should just eat some spinach. It'll be fine, right? It's enough to say, you know, let's give you some spinach, but let's make sure you're getting the biggest bang for your buck out of that spinach. And that is the future we all hope that we are working toward. And I know a lot of eye doctors have a, have a test. They can me measure the macular pigment in their eye. Right. Um, you know, I have it in my office and it, it really is quite helpful. I mean, it might not be perfect as a research tool. I'm not sure, but it does, it is helpful to see if people are getting those uh, great carotenoids uh, into yeah. the so there, these are some unique pieces of information that you can really get from your optometrist and kind of only from your optometrist at this point. So it's, you know, it's one of those situations when we're thinking about medicine and about healthcare. You know, the, the model in the US is we go, to a, we go to our general practitioner, you know, our internist or our family physician, and our family physician should be recommending for us all of the other things that we need to do and keeping track for us of all of our medications and all of our behaviors and, and sort of dealing with that as needed. And that's not usually how it happens. I don't know many family practitioners or internists who even talk to patients optometrists, right? That, that line of communication that should be there and that should be so strong isn't there. I've had patients who've come to me who are recommended lutein supplements by their optometrist and I'm going, yes, good optometrist. <laughs> well done, good find who then go to their general practitioner who says, you don't need any of that. And I keep thinking, there's a communication breakdown there. In fact, there's a link that's not even existent. 17 so, years? I know. So, so my hope is that in fewer than 17 years, right, we will be in the position where, where general providers and optometrists are, are really communicating. Because we do know this, patients have a limited healthcare budget they really care about their sight, and they will go see their optometrist. So I, I feel like there's a call to action for optometrists to say, gosh, we don't know if this patient's really seeing a general provider. We don't know a lot of this patient's behavior. We, we have a little bit more time to spend talking to that patient and really getting to know what's going on. You know, OD as GP is not that weird a concept actually. Um, and if you are a GP listening to this, if you're a general provider, an internist, a family physician, ask your patient about his or her eye care, right? Their eye care is such an important thing. You can learn so much um, from a really good optometrist. Make that connection and, and close the link there because there are some things that only your optometrist will be able to tell. Well, Lisa, I really thank you for doing this with me today. You've helped so many people over the years. Okay. You've helped doctors. You've helped so many patients. And through this podcast and through our film, which you were part of, we're going to help a lot more people. So if people want to find you and they want to get more information, how can they, how can they contact you or find you and, you and find out about your work? Great questions. Um, first of all, for those of you who are who are TED Talk consuming folks, um, uh, this spring I'll be giving a TED Talk um, at UGA's TEDx event on macular pigment. We've made it to the big time if we're doing TED Talks on macular pigment. Um, so so please feel free to tune into that. I 
it, it's happening in March, and I really look forward to you being able to, to go out and, and find it on the, on the TED website. Um, you can always Google me. Um, I'm in the University of Georgia College of Public Health, but better. Let's try this. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Please, um, please connect with me. But how about an old-fashioned email address? For those of you listening who have a question, um, who would like to reach out and connect, I would love it if you did. I mean this very sincerely. I will write you back. Um, my email address is um, L, R as in Roger, E as in Echo, N as in November, Z as in Zebra, and I as in Igloo, Lrenzi at uga.edu. Um, we're, we've got an initiative going here at the University of Georgia where we're building a brand new integrative center where we are going to try to change the way that we are um, looking at, at Alzheimer's disease, diagnosing issues, looking at cognitive function, and it's going to start with the eyes. So feel free to reach out and ask us for more information about that. We'll be, we will definitely be in touch. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for helping so much people, so many people, and we'll we'll speak soon. Thank Sounds you. Sounds great, Carrie. Take care. Bye. Bye.